Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. This episode of DTC Pod is also brought to you by Peel Insights, the e-commerce analytics platform that supercharges all of your retention efforts every day and with every customer. Go to peelinsights.com slash dtcpod to learn how hundreds of e-commerce brands use Peel to reveal purposeful insights like LTV, AOV, repurchase rate, churn, and hundreds of metrics more. See how brands are nurturing deeper customer relationships with easy-to-use retention tools that hyper-target and provide immediate growth. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCpod. What's up, DTCpod? Today we're joined by Kian Golzari, who we all know from sourcing with Kian. So Kian, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about your background in sourcing and supply chain, how you got started at some of the brands you work with and just a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, I've been living and working in China since 2010, so 12 years now. And in that time, I've designed, sourced, developed and manufactured over two and a half thousand different products. And that's led me to work with different brands, retailers and licenses, such as the NBA, the Olympics, United Nations, Ministry of Defense, a lot of big box retailers in the UK, Europe and the US, as well as helping source and uh, coach and help Amazon private label sellers and Shopify sellers as well. So it's a wide variety of different experience from loads of different retailers and licenses and brands that I've produced for. And a lot of people ask me like, well, how do you supply the NBA and how do you supply big Amazon sellers and Shopify sellers and stuff like that? And it's really just from the common denominator is being able to really understand how to get the best factories, how to get the best prices, how to get the best quality, how to get the best terms. And that was learned from spending so much time in China with the factories and not only China, like other countries as well. Uh, But yeah, so happy to uh, kick it with you guys today and talk about all that sort of stuff and deliver some actionable value that you guys can apply to your business today. No, we're we're super excited for it. So why don't you take us back? Um, What was what was your background before? Like, how did you get into the whole sourcing and supply chain game before you started sourcing for the NBA Olympics and all these like major brands like where was your start how did you get to know these factories how did you get to know the whole processes in and out yeah sure so I was really lucky because um, growing up my dad started his passions like camping and outdoor so he was going to China about like 30 years ago when they were coming out of a communist rule and like you know he was helping factories hey this is how we make products this is how we like our products in the west and then so he was working factories initially so when I was like five years old six years old my dad was going to China and it was not what it's like today it was like literally farmland and stuff like that so he would always come back from china every six months and he'd bring back these like weird little gifts and all that so as a kid i was always curious like you know what does my dad do in china like what are these weird things like i can't wait to go one day and uh, he would also bring over chinese suppliers to the house because they would visit i grew up in scotland uh, in the uk Chinese suppliers would come over to the house, they would bring gifts, they would stay at the house. And I was just chatting to these like suppliers, like as a kid. So when I was like, when I graduated university, I went to university in Glasgow in Scotland and also did a year abroad at University of Miami. And when I finished university, my dad was like, hey, do you want to come to China? Do you want to learn the supply chain stuff? Because we had a medium sized business called Highlander, which was just camping and outdoor products. 
he was like, do you want to come uh, chat with me? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I went for the first time in 2010 and working for the family business. And what was supposed to be like a two week trip, I ended up staying for three months. And I loved it so much. I went back home, I got my things, and then I moved back to China, set up an office there, and then just stayed there for the long term. Because I was just fascinated. And anyone who's been to a factory before, like hopefully you've had the same experience. The first factory I ever went to was a backpack factory. And before I went to this factory, I always thought of a backpack as one unit on a shelf in a store and that was it. But when you see it in a factory, you see it in 30 different pieces. You know, you see the shoulder straps, the foam that goes in the shoulder straps, uh, the webbing, the zippers, the buckles, the, the zipper pullers, the inside lining, the waterproof coating. And then you see it all put together. And my mind was just blown. And then all of a sudden now, like let's say you've got a $15 product and you need to make it a $12 product. Well, I've got 30 different calculations I can make in my head in terms of how to reduce the cost of this product. Or if you want to improve the quality, I've got 30 different places I can go where I can improve the quality. And then I was just lucky that was my first experience and I really wanted to learn more. So going to more factories, learning how more, more products were made, that just led me to become better at what I do. So when it came to supplying the retailers and the MBA and stuff like that, I was able to look at what they were already doing and be able to offer something of better value and then also offer at a better price as well, just from my experience and I had over in the Far East. Were how you said ten years? Then you moved there. And so I moved there. I went for the first time in two thousand and ten. So and I've been back and forth ever since. This is the longest time I've never been in China because obviously uh, because of COVID. But yeah, I moved there in two thousand and eleven, and I stayed there for several years. And even when I left China, I still went back like every three or four months. What what would you? I find it super interesting that you built these like non-scalable one-to-one relationships with all these suppliers, manufacturers. I mean, instead of going on Alibaba, like they were literally coming to you to your house, um, and you were building the relationships with them. How do you see that as like having built your career differently than the access anyone now has today? To Alibaba, um, like how do you still leverage, you know, those relationships, or do you do a combination of sourcing on Alibaba and still do the personal relationship? Like how how did that develop your career differently than the tools that are out there today? Yeah, that's a great question, and you know, like to your point, like doing it in person, face to face, forces you to build relationships. And honestly, like if anyone's listened to much of my content before, I always preach the importance of you get the best results in this business from building relationships, right? Because as a result of a better relationship, you get a better price you get better credit terms they offer you new products that you're working on they give you good information about what your competitors are doing they're like because as we develop products so do our factories as well they're like hey we're working on this new thing do you want to try it out for your market so loads of benefits come from relationships and i feel that a lot of businesses today bypass that whole thing because they go to alibaba.com they're like hey this is what i want this is my price this is my delivery date they're like cool and then all those benefits that we just talked about, they didn't receive because they never took time to build that relationship. And you can still build relationships via like Alibaba.com because like initially, like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, even five years ago, the good factories were not going there because they were at the Canton Fair and all the big buyers, all the big brands were going to the Canton Fair. And those factories were so good at what they do that their production lines were always full. So they never felt a need to go on Alibaba.com. But now... Um, with, with COVID happening and the Canton Fair not being open since 2019, now those bigger factories are having to list on Alibaba.com. And also when, when COVID first hit, like, well, now we have to buy it online because we can't go and see the factories like face to face. So there, you can still find amazing factories on Alibaba.com. You can still build great relationships there as well. But it's very, very important to know how to utilize it in terms of like, there's going to be a lot of great suppliers on there, but there's also going to be a lot of bad suppliers. And where people have really made mistakes is if they just go, they're looking for a product, let's say blue light blocking glasses, they go into Alibaba.com. And on the website, all the products look the same and they'll see it for like, you know, $3 and $4.50 and $7 and $1.80. And they're like, what's the difference here? Because this looks like the exact same product. This is $1.80, that was $7, right? Let me go for like the cheaper one. But in actual fact, like when you're using Alibaba.com, the purpose of it is to find the best suppliers, not find the lowest price. And once you find the best suppliers, then you can start to negotiate the price down. So anyone who's like, you know, wanting to use it better, what I would suggest is that when you go on Alibaba.com, you can search by either products or manufacturers. You want to search by manufacturers, not by products. And then when you, you want to select verified information, meaning a third party has gone to that factory and verified that all that information is correct. So that will tell you the number of years they've been in business, what markets they supply, what certificates they have, what type of machinery they have, how many workers they have, where's their factory located. 
and like how many trade shows they've attended, like which countries have attended these trade shows. And this gives us a lot of key information about these factories to then understand, right, how do we want to, to work with them? And not only that as well, I would look at, you know, the the number of years they've been in business, anything like five plus um, is going to be great. And so we can now utilize the information they get from Alibaba.com to then select the best factories to work with. And then once we find those factories, it's all about writing an opening message that builds leverage because a lot of people are just like, hey, uh, this is, I want this product, I want a thousand pieces, what's your best price? I would always word my initial message in, I want to let that factory know why I selected to work with them. So I would say, hey, I came across your profile, I'm looking at your verified information, I can see that you've attended three canton fairs and you've also attended these trade shows in Italy. That's great because I also attend trade shows and I look forward to seeing you in person in fact, in your factory one day. And that's telling the factory that, hey, I'm a serious buyer, I travel to China, I will come to your place of business, and then therefore they respect you a lot more as a customer because they know you're not just someone buying products online and just trying to flip it for a profit, you're actually someone which understands this, uh, this business model. I can also see that you have these three quality certifications, they're also certifications that, that we value as well, that means that because one of our... Um, core values is high quality, which means we also place a high emphasis on, on high quality. So I look forward to working with you. And this is telling the factory, wow, this person's actually taking the time to look at our listing, uh, look at all the points and tell us what they like about us. So they, and then you're, they're not gonna bullshit you on price because they know you know about this particular product, right? And then compare that to someone that's like, hey, what's your best price? They can just sort of tell you what you want to hear, right? So it's utilizing these uh, platforms and resources to your advantage is so, so important. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's really interesting about that, Kian, is just like you said, in terms of how you're thinking about it, in terms of picking the right manufacturer as opposed to just picking it based on product, right? I think so many people, the first reaction is like, I need to make this product, so let me go find someone who makes this exact product when factories can make all sorts of things. Maybe they haven't listed that they've made that exact specific product, but you don't want to end up working with someone who gives you really crappy quality. And uh, it's not like the same thing as shopping from an e-commerce catalog, right? You're trying to like read between the lines to understand the quality of the partner that you're working with, less so like, let me shop and buy this specific pre-made product. And I mean, even Ramon, one this is experience that we've had right in terms of like looking at for different things sometimes you can just go to a website that has the pre-done products listed you go to select it you get it and like the hat comes and the quality is just like total crap and you're like no no no, this is not what i'm looking for how could i as a brand sell this product because ultimately like if if i'm going to be developing my own product and selling it to customers we as a brand have certain um you know levels to live up to in terms of quality and other sort of brand values so i guess the next question I have for you, Kian, along these lines is you just laid out some of the general frameworks that you would think about in terms of approaching um, one of these. If you were a brand starting out, right, like how do you how would you think about sourcing um, initially? Like, would would you need a consultant? Is this stuff that you can teach yourself online? Like if you wanted to say, let's just use the example of, say, like we want to build a uh, an apparel line and we want to make hats, right? Like what would your initial go-to strategy be for doing that at the early stage for a company yeah for sure and you listed some great points there in terms of like okay well first of all we identified how to find the factories but now it's like how do we get that good quality and for me it starts with creating something called the specification sheet which is exactly what you want to order so let's take for example the hats that you mentioned right on the spec sheet, I would say, right, our hats are, you know, the circumference is, you know, 18 by 18 centimeters. It's this type of polyester material. We need this type of screen printed logo on the front, or we need this embroidery on the front. We need that embroidery on the side. We need this uh, brown P- uh, 4072 Pantone color on the left panel, and we need this red Pantone color on the right panel. The packaging is this um, recycled uh, polyester hang tag or recycled wood or, or something like that. So I'm giving all the product details, the dimensions, the Pantone colors, the certifications, the quality, everything on a one page or PDF, right? So, but flip that, if we didn't create that and we went on Alibaba.com, we typed in baseball cap, right? We're going to get a wide variety of different qualities, different prices. And then we're not comparing apples with apples because we're getting the prices, you know, uh, 270, 320, but like they're com- they're quoting us on different things. So there's no chance you can get an accurate price and uh, unless you tell that supplier it is what you want. And if you don't know, if you've not made this before and you don't know exactly what you do want, 
but you can still take images from other brands, other websites. You know, you can go into hat stores, you can go to lids, you can take photos like, right, I want this on the left, I want this on the right, I want the underside to look like this, I want this coating on it, I want to add this waterproof coating, this new textured material that Nike are using. So you can literally just take photos of all these things and like literally just add comments, add notes, PDF that. It's very, very important to put your name and email on that PDF as well, because when you send it to the factory, it might get passed around different people and then it gets lost. But then as long as you have your name and email on it, someone will always get back to you. And then that way, you're ensuring that what they do price you on and what they are manufacturing for that is exactly to your requirements. And the top factories will not make mistakes. They will know exactly what it is, what you want. And they appreciate you giving all the information upfront at once. Because the biggest pain in the ass for the factory is when you're like, hey, I want this hat. And then they make the sample and you're like, all right, but no, no, we actually wanted this material. It's like, okay. And then they make that material like, oh, but by the way, we wanted the brim a little bit longer. Like, okay, we'll do it. And they're just like, they get fed up really quickly. So. It, you will get the best services, you'll get the best prices, you'll get the best results if you provide all that information upfront at once and also allows you to compare pricing. Now, the other thing was that, let's say for example, the sample is not right first time. The sample process is so, so important as well because I see a lot of sellers, they just go to alibaba.com, they place an order, they buy it from alibaba.com, they sell it on Amazon or Shopify and they learn about the defects in the product when they get those negative reviews and returns. Whereas in actual fact, you have to have an absolutely solid sample process, meaning, we did the specification sheet, then we get a sample from the factory. We're gonna call that our pre-production sample. And if there's any changes to that sample, if it didn't arrive 100% correct, then we need to get another sample. I would never, ever, ever place a deposit to a factory unless I've got a sample in my hand that I'm 100% happy with to be like, right, this is what I want you to go into production with. And once you have that, then you can place your purchase order, then you can place your 30% deposit. Then the production commences. And then, all right, production's finished, ready for shipment, go for it. It's like, no, well, now I need a pre-shipment sample. So you gave me a pre-production sample as what I confirmed you to go into production. Now I need you to send me a pre-shipment sample of what you've actually produced. We get that pre-shipment sample, we compare them side by side, they should be 100% correct uh, or similar. And if they're not, then you have a chance while the goods are still at the factory to fix something. Maybe it's missing a label or maybe they didn't put a coating on it that you required or maybe they missed stitching a logo or something like that. Maybe they forgot to put the barcode on it you can fix that while it's there at their expense, at their labor cost, right? So then we get that pre-shipment sample, we're happy with, we sign that off. And then I sent in what's called a pre-shipment inspection company. This is a third party company that you hire, it costs about $200 and they'll go in and for a full day, they'll check your production, they'll test the products and they'll write you a 50 page report with loads of pictures to be like, you ordered 1500 pieces, uh, 500 blue, 500 red, 500 yellow. Here, here they are, they have made that, that color, that quantity. Uh, here's all the packaging, here's the cartons, here's the barcodes, we scanned the barcodes, everything's correct. Uh, the hats are, are the right size, we measured that. Some of them had like dust marks on them and then you can use that report to be like, hey, well, you know, we still approved this shipment but we need you to wipe off all the dust marks and things like that. So that's like your eyes and ears inside the factory, which is a third party, which is telling you, right, these goods were made to your standard. But if they're not, then like, cause a factory can always give you an amazing sample, but the production is something different. And these are the guys which go in and check. And there's those pre-shipment inspection companies you can use. Um, and then that way we've confirmed a pre-production sample. We've confirmed a pre-shipment sample and a third party has verified that the goods are there to our standard of what we ordered. Now we can arrange the shipment. And that's gonna basically prevent any quality issues from happening. What is the time lapse between that entire process, of course, that highly depends on whether you do the process right and you do it like the way you mentioned it, um, you know, from, from A to Z. Yeah, it's a great question. So it will always depend like based on the, the product, but normally as a rule of thumb, like, okay, it will take around 10 to 14 days to find those factories online, communicate with them, send your spec sheets, get information, get the pricing. And then it will take another 10 to 14 days for them to arrange a sample and send it to you. So it'll take about one month for you to receive a sample that, that you're happy with. And then once you're like, okay, cool, this is a sample that I wanna go into production with. Normally I say as a general rule of thumb, it's 60 days, 60 days production because it's 30 days for them to order the raw materials and it's 30 days for them to do the, the mass production. It might be 45, it might be 65, but normally 60 days, uh, give or take is the time and then allow for a month for shipment as well. If, if you're shipping it from China to the East Coast, it's gonna take about 35 days, but if it's China to the West Coast, it's gonna take maybe like 12 days. So if we allow one month for the supplier selection sample process, uh, two months for the production, 
and then one month for shipping. You're kind of like from when your initial outreach to when you receive your goods, you're looking at about four months, between 100 to 120 days. But then that time comes way down once that first order goes smooth and now you just need to place a reorder. Yeah, I, I, I assume that when you work with factories directly, they're like, this guy knows more than us about this. Um, and so your impression, you come in completely different. It's like when you go into a car dealership, you know nothing about a car. And then you're like, wait, I want the sunroof. And they're like, oh, you already lost a negotiation at that point. The salesman know he's going to get you the leather seats, the sunroof, et cetera, et cetera. And even with the hat example that you just gave, there are so many details within a hat, right? Like most people don't even know that a hat could have five panels or six panels or whatever. So do you do you focus in a specific vertical of products? Because I assume, you know, there could be consultants even for specific verticals, like car parts are probably so complex, so many details. Um, do you focus in a specific vertical? No, and, and I love this question, right? Because a lot of people think that they're like, well, I want to source this outdoor furniture chair, this camping chair, but like, I don't know like about camping chairs. So how do I know like how, what features I should be adding there? And like one, you can do your research in terms of like, all right, buy the top sellers on Amazon, use it, feel it, make sure you're happy with it. Go into a retail store, uh, ask the guy who works there, like, hey, what are the main issues with this product? What do people like about it? Like build up your knowledge about the product. But my favorite thing I like to do is that, we, we talked about that process in terms of finding the top five suppliers on Alibaba, right? I also, let's say I would like to find 10 suppliers and I've got five that I don't want to work with for whatever reason, maybe they're a new factory or they're not established yet or they don't supply the US market or something like that. So this is factories that I don't want to work with. I'm going to ask all my stupid questions to those factories that I don't want to work with, right? So I'm going to say, hey, I'm interested in ordering these like outdoor camping chairs, but you know, I see you do like, you know, 40 by 80 centimeters. You also do 30 by 60, you know, what's your most popular size that you sell? We're like, well, you know what? 80% of our exports are those 40 by 80. All right, cool. And I see you do nylon fabric. We also do polyester. Like what's the price difference between those two fabrics? They're like, oh, well, you know what? Polyester is like just as good as nylon, but it's like half the price. So we definitely recommend you do polyester. All right, cool. And you know, I see you do like aluminum tubing, but also steel tubing. Like what's the difference? Like, well, aluminum is actually a lot lighter, uh, but steel is much cheaper. So if weight isn't an issue, like if you're using it for your car, then definitely go for steel. All right, cool. And then I'm going to take that information, I'm going to make my spec sheet and I'm going to go to the factors I do want to work with and be like, hey, you know what? I need these steel uh, aluminum chairs. It needs to be 40 by 80 and I need this 600D polyester material. And they're going to be like, oh, wow, this guy really knows about his products. Like we better give him the best price because we can't bullshit this guy. But I just learned that from talking to other factories. So even if you don't know about a product, just find factories that you don't want to work with and ask them all your questions, plus buy the samples, plus go into retail stores and you'll quickly become an expert on these products. So Kian, once you, you've done that, I think we have a, a generally a pretty decent framework and just to like recap for our listeners. So like step one is you're gonna get your initial product sample. Step two is you wanna get your product sample that comes off the line, your pre-shipment pre -shipment sample. And then you also wanna have a third party come in and vet and make sure, give you a breakdown of everything that's been produced before it leaves the factory, right? Because once it's left the factory, and I'm sure you see this all the time, and I know we've heard brands have dealt with this sort of stuff as well. You, you know, brands could end up with an entire shipment of product that they never wanted in the first place, or that it, it takes the product being shipped all the way from overseas to their warehouse, and they open it up and they're like, oh my God, this is not what we wanted, which is a massive problem, right? So these are kind of the, the frameworks to work with to make sure you catch all those errors. Are there any other tips that you have to make sure that whole process goes smoothly to make sure you don't end up, end up with any really expensive lessons? Yeah, for sure. And the, the bigger brand you are, the more leverage you have, right? So let's say, for example, you're doing over a million dollars with this particular product or you're a retailer or just a normal Shopify brand, but your volumes are pretty big and you've done consistent orders with this factory. You should definitely start to negotiate credit terms with your factory. So you still put down that 30% deposit, but you'll pay that remaining 70% balance, let's say after 90 days or 100 days or something like that and their factory are happy to do that because they know that you know your orders are very consistent your orders are growing it, you've always been paying your factory on time but that gives you that little bit of protection in terms of well if my goods arrive and they're defective i haven't actually paid for them yet so i'm not going to pay the factory because i received something that wasn't sufficient to my needs and in that way you're ultimately protected but if you have like a fifty thousand dollar order and you pay for it before it arrives and it's defective well good luck trying to get that 50k back so credit terms is a great way. The other thing I like to do as well is that 
sometimes your goods can actually get damaged in transit as well and then it could be a freight forwarder and then the factory blames the freight forwarder freight forwarder blames the factory and you're like well between you guys someone needs to pay me so what what i normally do is that i always get a photo so you have photos of the production from that pre-shipment inspection report which shows the goods are fine i always ask the factory can you send me a photo of all the cartons when they're loaded into the container so before you seal those container doors send me a photo of all the boxes uh, in the in the container like cool so i have that photo the doors close and when the goods arrive at my warehouse let's say the boxes are wet or they're damaged or they're crushed or anything like that and i say to the freight forwarder hey by the way like these boxes arrived completely damaged 25 percent of my stock is defective they're like oh yeah it was like that when we picked up from the factory it's like well actually no here's my pre-shipment inspection report it shows the goods are fine and here's a photo of the container door before it was closed where the goods are also fine so it must have happened on your watch and they're like okay cool and then they arrange compensation so that kind of helps your goods uh, in transit as well but also just going back to what we talked about about relationships and stuff like that as well mistakes do happen and i've had products arrive at my warehouse which have been defective and it's because it's not factory didn't do it deliberately they just forgot like i'll, I'll give you one example i did them um, eighteen thousand military backpacks and um they were for the uk for scotland where it rains a lot rains every day right the factory forgot to put the waterproof coating on the material. So I got 18,000 backpacks which were not waterproof, yet people have to put goods which need to stay dry in there. And we got it and we're like, I can't sell this. Like, I just can't, like, it will just get returned. So we explained to the factory and everything in the process, you know, past the pre-shipment inspection report and all that sort of stuff, samples were fine. But when we explained it to the factory, we're like, we can't sell this. And then the factory, at their own expense, remade 18,000 bags and sent it to us free of charge. Took a massive loss on that order, but they understood the long-term business that we had because we'd been buying from them for several years. And they could see, well, okay, let's say, for example, I'm going to take a 50K loss on this order. I make more than 50K supplying this customer every year. So let me just take a loss this time, and at least I've still got them. And we've been working for them for the last 10 years. But if they washed their hands of it and they said, sorry, we made a mistake, but we're not going to like refund you anything, they would have lost us. But they had the long-term vision and that comes from the relationship. So uh, ensuring you have a good relationship always helps as well. Yeah, that stuff is, is, is really important. And I think it's just, it, I think my one takeaway there is just like at the end of the day, you are your own backstop for this sort of stuff. So you need to be thinking ahead and planning for not just like, oh, expecting everything, like expect things will go wrong and try to prepare yourself to have the ammo. So like at least you're doing your diligence every step of the way so that if something gets messed up, you can at least point to, oh, I did this, I had this check I, and you have your process in place to make sure that, um, you know, you're not just like leaving it up to chance. And like even the, the fact I love you're like, take a picture of it before it gets in the in the shipping container, that's something that a lot of people wouldn't even think about. And then you you won't have to end up dealing with the back and forth between the freight forwarder and the manufacturer. You're like, no, no, I know exactly where this kind of stuff went wrong. So being proactive about this stuff is so, so important. It's funny because you can have a checklist of all these things, but um, no lesson is better taught than like losing 25, 50, 100 grand. You know, that's that's when you really ensure to, to ask for the pictures before. Totally. And all these lessons that you learn, you just add it into your processes. So if something happens, like let's say, for example, some goods were shipped to you and they never had the barcode on it. Well, you just add it into your Asana tasks or however you sort your processes to be like, check the barcodes. And it's like, as soon as a mistake happens, add it into your systems and processes to make sure that that's always checked for and nev that never happens again. But, you know, it's interesting, like in this episode, I've talked quite a bit about, you know, how about building relationships with your factory and i get asked quite a lot well how do i build a relationship with my factory if i'm dealing with them on on alibaba right i've never met them before they're online i don't have any plans to go to china so how do i build that relationship and i always say that you should definitely utilize an app called wechat wechat is like the chinese messenger app that's what they use for like their communication and stuff like that and i always keep my important conversations to email in terms of like price delivery date sample approval all that sort of stuff but on wechat i would just message him on the weekends hey how's it going how's your weekend where are you up to um you know, uh, uh, what did you, did you go for dinner? Like, can you send me some photos? I'm just at a game with my buddies, having some beers. If you can come to the States next time, I'd love to take you out. And we're just now having that conversation. So I can now text, voice note, call them on WeChat whenever I like, because we've built that informal relationship. And where it really helps you is that, like, let's say, for example, your goods are ready to ship on the 1st of April. 
I can call them at the end of March and be like on a video chat on WeChat to be like, hey, the goods are almost ready for shipment. Do you mind just taking me down to the production floor just to show me all the goods that are there? Are the inspectors there? Can you show me how they're checking the products? And now you've got like eyes and ears inside the factory because you built that relationship up through WeChat. And Chinese New Year's coming up, it's gonna be the end of January. And that's always a good time to solidify your relationship to be like, hey, where are you up to for the holidays? You got like a couple of weeks off, are you going in anywhere nice? Uh, you know, what's your tradition over Chinese New Year? What type of food do you normally eat? Like, how do you celebrate fireworks? Oh, cool, can you send me some videos? Um, I wanna send a gift for you and your boss. Um, where can I send it? And I would suggest like, you know, sending something that represents like your hometown. You know, if you're from like Chicago, send like a Chicago Bulls like t-shirt or something like that because they have international customers from all over the world and if you can just sort of send them something of your hometown then they, it means a lot to them right and then you can pull in favors later on so for me like i'm from scotland right whenever i went to a factory i would always take uh, the factory boss a bottle of whiskey and they love that because they're like well i can't really get this good quality whiskey like in china and it's like a proper like scottish whiskey and i'd always get a photo with the boss right because i know somewhere down the line later in the year i'm gonna have to ask for a favor let's say I need my goods put to the front of the production schedule, I must get these goods to ship out in the next 30 days. And I'm talking to the sales assistant, and I'm like, hey, I know that you said these goods can only ship out on the 1st of April, but I really need it to ship out on the 1st of March. Is there anything you can do? And then they were like, all right, let me check the boss. And then they were like, hey, you know, we've got this order, it needs to go 1st of March a month earlier. Boss would be like, who's asking? They're like, it's Kian. Oh, Kian's the guy who's coming out, bought the whiskey. Oh yeah, I got up there, like, yeah, I had it with my friends. Oh yeah, he's a great guy, cool, yeah, let's do it. So like I just sent a gift, but I've actually pulled the favor for somewhere later on down the line. And then that also stems from relationships, which helps you get the best results. But you know, like Blaine, to your point earlier, you, you were saying that like, you know, things were going wrong. Like, why is this happening to me and all this sort of stuff? Like something happened to my order. And that's a lot, that's a typical sort of like thought that when something goes wrong with sourcing from China or any part of the world, they're like, why is this happening to me? But just think about like you know in the last couple of years what's happened like shipping prices have skyrocketed factories have closed down raw material costs and labor costs have increased and everyone's like why is this happening to me a container price was four thousand dollars now it's twenty thousand dollars but if it's happening to you it's also happening to your competition so it's actually an opportunity if you can solve this quicker than anyone else like if your shipping prices have gone up we'll just say to your factory can you hold goods uh, in storage in your factory for me free of charge until the shipping costs come down or if the container price was four thousand dollars and now it's twenty thousand dollars the increase is sixteen thousand dollars can we split that increase 50 50 because if I, now the products are too expensive for me to ship that there's no margin for me and if i don't ship them i don't sell them if i don't sell them you don't get any orders so let's split it 50 50 and then i can continue ordering this product and you can continue to manufacture it they're like yeah cool and they're happy with that because we built the relationship and they believe in the long-term vision but we just saved half of our shipping costs. So it's like, you have to get creative. You have to think of ways of like, where can you get that advantage? Where can you make those one or 2% savings that other people are not thinking about? Because normally when things go wrong in production and supply chain, it happens to everyone. And so this is probably why you're involved in such big and great deals that you know you're gonna be a long-term customer rather than just one-off drop shipping for one product, right? Um, you know, I was doing some research, you seem to have worked with Steph Curry, the NBA, um, tons of organizations. Uh, like how have you, I mean, this knowledge, you've leveraged it to, to be able to do these partnerships. Um, I would love to switch gears and, and dive into those partnerships um, and, and just learn more about, you know, how, how you built those relationships and how you were able to deliver on, on these partnerships. Yes, it's funny, man, because like they were all different. Like in terms of the Olympics, I did that. It, I did that for the London 2012 Olympics. So 2010, the first time I went to China was when they were like awarding the, the contracts for that. And like I said, I grew up in a family business. So my brother actually applied to be an Olympic licensee through like a tender process. And it went from like 200 companies, narrowed it down to 10, 50, 25. And we're like, oh shit, like I had no idea that we we're even in the running for this. And then eventually it got awarded because we were able to give uh, good production at great prices and great samples and stuff like that. So that was like an official tender, like Olympic process. But with the NBA, um, I just sent a, a DM on Instagram to a former player because uh, I went to University of Miami. When I was in Miami, I was on the practice squad, so I knew some of the players. One of the players got drafted into the league uh, and then just went to Europe and all that. But he got drafted in 2009, which is the same year as Steph. So when I, um, I reached out to him, DM, I was like, hey, man, I've been doing all this work in production and factories. I work with all these retailers. If you can get the NBA license, then I can make the best product at the best price. And I have those connections with the retailers anyway. So he was like, cool. So he contacted some players, Steph was one of them. 
And then like, you know, when we had these samples and we had these products, we created this website and we got the NBA license, Steph started posting the product on his IG. And then Steph started posting the product, created massive demand, sent it to a Shopify store. And then like, because Steph's friends with like Neymar, the football player, I call it football, um, soccer. Um, Neymar saw the product, had a young kid, like, hey, these products look great. Can I, and we went to Brazil, got a license with him. Lewis Hamilton, same thing. So uh, we just kind of used that uh, as, as leverage. And then the relationship with the retailers was, we went to trade shows and things like that, had meetings with them, showed them who we worked with. Uh, once we supplied the Olympics and that was an exclusive license, we could approach all the retailers to be like, hey, we have the exclusive license for the Olympics for these nine categories of product. Do you want to purchase these products? And they were like, cool. And everything went well in terms of price was good, delivery was on time, quality was great, sales were good. And we were like, hey, we also do these other products, these camping and outdoor products. And they were like, do you want to uh, order these as well? And it started off as two products that they ordered. And then we filled like 19 pages in their catalog with brands that we created for them. So it just kind of like, you have to show your worth, show what you're good at and things like that. And I think now, you know, the next step is working with big uh, content creators as well, because, you know, you see what Mr. Beast is doing, you see what Logan Paul's doing, the amount of traffic they can drive. And if you can give them a very good product at a very good price, something that they're passionate about, that's something that they want to develop and make it happen, like um, it could be phenomenal. So I, I just like working on like passion projects and working with different brands, retailers, companies. And that's what's so exciting about this e-commerce, Amazon, Shopify industry, because you meet a lot of really cool people uh, who are just like hustling, developing cool products, cool brands, and they're doing so well for themselves. And they could be very young or they could be middle-aged with like three kids. It doesn't matter. Like there are just so many people that are winning. So it's nice to be amongst that type of energy. So yeah, I, I just like helping out uh, wherever I can. That's amazing. And I mean, talk about name dropping. Um, it, uh, w what were those products specifically? I mean, were, were these like, um, you know, so Olympics, I assume it was like products for the fans to buy. What were some of those products? And then for Neymar, or Lewis Hamilton, I mean, are these Nike products? Are these their own branded products? So so with the Olympics, we had nine different categories. So we had um, <clears throat> we had like backpacks, we had blankets, we had outdoor furniture chairs, we had wallets um, and a few other things as well. And then those were just sold uh, in retail stores and then on the Olympic Park as well. And the funny thing about the Olympic Games was that, you know, there's like no sales data, right? Because like the previous Olympics before London was four years before and it was in Beijing. So it's not like, oh, hey, how many did they sell in Beijing? Because we think we can sell that in London as well. So there's no previous sales data to go for. But when you're ordering these goods a year in advance and you have a two week window, because the Olympics is only on for two weeks in the summer, there's no reordering. So it's like, it, if you order like 100,000 units of something and you only sell 10,000, you're like, well, now we're stuck with 90,000 units that we can't do anything with because after the Olympics, it's dead stock. Or if you order 50,000, but you sold 50,000 in the first day, you're like, oh man, we could have sold 500,000 if we just ordered more. So that was really interesting to try and get that balance right without taking too much risk. Uh, but, and- How'd you guys for, do it? Like, how, yeah, what'd you guys end up on? So we actually did pretty well because what, what we did is we went to all the retailers in the UK and we took forward orders from them to say that, hey, we're doing these like outdoor blankets, we're doing these outdoor chairs, we're doing these bags do you want to take a commitment right now to ensure that you have stock? Uh, and then they would order like, you know, 50,000 pieces and something like that. So we would order on top of that, knowing that we've already sold 50,000 before we actually produce them. So that sort of hedged our risk a little bit. Um, but for the NBA, we had the, the license for like the home bedding category. So we were doing blankets, towels, bed sheets, all that sort of stuff. But it, we, the way we would do it is not just like a blanket with like a, a Lakers logo on it. We would have like uh, it, every toy, every product has to tell us tell a story. So we would actually have like a blanket or a bed sheet with, um, let's say, LeBron's body on it and his face on the pillow, so a child can go to sleep dreaming they are their favorite player. And um, and then we did that with like blankets and towels and bed sheets and pillows and stuff like that. And then it just like it, it went pretty well on like social and things like that. So. Yeah, it was, I, uh, it was what it was I love is that we dove into this this part of your career on the second half of the podcast. So people in the beginning are like, who is this guy? Why should I be listening to him on supply chain? Um, and then we dive into that midway. But that's amazing. I'm curious on the Neymar. And I mean, I, I recently watched the Neymar documentary on Netflix. Um, it's unbelievable. Like just like the brand deals he he had his you know, fandom, not over, not only in Brazil, but like all over the world, but he's like a God in Brazil. 
yeah what were some of those products um that you guys worked together on and like do you partner with the brands like or or is this just like individual products i'm trying to to understand if like because for example he had a deal with nike right so like how does that mix into the play sure yeah great question you, you can't conflict with any of the uh, deals that he's already got so with nike right and he switched to puma now but at the time he was with nike and you know with, with nike he had a deal like he was doing like clothing and football boots and selling footballs and stuff like that so we could never do any products that nike also do even like a random product like sunglasses even though nike don't make neymar sunglasses in his contract it says you cannot do this with another brand they take all that clothing and all those sort of accessories and things like that but with neymar we did this uh similar products that we did for the for the NBA uh, but what was such a cool experience about that is we got to go to Brazil we went to um, Sao Paulo and went to Santos which is where his institute is and you know like not a lot of people know like what he actually does like for charity and for his community and for his people and stuff like that and uh, going to um, you know we went to like the favelas in the area where, where he grew up and what he's built this whole institute, which is like, it's got all these like football pitches, netball, uh, basketball courts. It's got like hairdressers for kids. It's got like education. It's got like media stuff, swimming pools, all this sort of stuff. And it's all free and it's all for the kids. And if you, you can get in there every day for free as long as you've gone to school that day. But if you don't go to school, you can't get into his institute. So he's encouraging kids to go to school to then come and play and learn skills. And there's top coaches there like helping the kids. And in that area, there's a lot of crime and there's every wall has got graffiti on it, right? But at Neymar's Institute, it's maybe like a 100 meter by 100 meter like square, or maybe more than that actually. And it's all white walls. It's all white. It's all been painted white and there's not a single drop of graffiti. And that's the hometown telling Neymar, like, we're going to leave your walls blank because we respect what you do for the kids. And it's like, seeing that was like it just gave me goosebumps and then like when you watch him on tv playing like football and commentators being like oh yeah this guy's like childish and he's just like you know hitting the floor he's trying to get fouls it's like these guys have no idea like what he does for his community and like what actual a nicer guy he is so it's really cool to get to experience that and meet his team and um and all that sort of stuff so it was a really really cool experiences honestly like the way i develop products is that like what do i want to do like i love basketball and I, so i want to work with players and i got to go to the games so i was in game four of the nba finals when the uh, warriors beat the Cavs and i partied with the team afterwards and i was like i wouldn't get to do this if i wasn't making products and wasn't you know being friends with the guys so i was trying to position myself to make products or whoever i want to like hang out with so big fan of neymar as well so glad that got to um got to happen as well Ian, and then I think my next question is his side of the story on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, Kian, the next question that I have. So like we went through in the beginning, like how, how you think about building out for an early stage brand, some of the things. And then we got into some of the great work that you've done with, um, you know, big creators, big influential athletes, as well as leagues and all this sort of stuff. My next question would be to like, thinking now as brands start to scale up and how you'd approach this sort of process for a later stage brand, right? Like let's imagine we've got a Shopify store, an Amazon instance, where maybe we're selling into retail, we're pushing like, you know, several million dollars worth of apparel or whatever product it is that we're making every year. How do you come in and how do you start like working with these brands to help them start optimizing or re-engineering supply chain, right? Like what are some of the considerations brands need to think about as things start to reach more of scale, they're introducing more product SKUs, their catalogs are more complex, um, this sort of stuff. How, how do you get involved with their sourcing and supply chain at that scale? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the biggest um, barriers to scale that I see is that a lot of sellers outgrow their supplier, meaning the first time they wanted to do this product they just had a small order, they wanted to trial it, it was 500 pieces, and they only worked with factories that were willing to do their order. And everything went smooth, they start to scale the business, and now that 500 units is, you know, 5,000 units every two months. But they never went back to see, like, am I getting the best factory, am I getting the best price? And they're, because of their volume now, they should be getting better prices, they should be getting better quality from higher factories, they should be getting lesser production times from factories which have, like, better infrastructure. 
but they've never shopped that around. And I'm not, I don't want to like say that, hey, by the way, as we get bigger, you should just leave your existing factory. But it's important for you to know, are you getting the best price, best quality, best terms from the top factories in relation to the size of business that you have? And, you know, we talked earlier about the specification sheet. And what I would do is that once you feel like your business has hit a certain size or scale, get that specification sheet, redo that exercise, go and reach out to the top five manufacturers on alibaba.com and then say like, hey, this is my product. Um, this is a volume that I'm doing, what's my best price? And if you're paying like $11 and now people are offering you nine, you're like, well, wow, like I can save like a good amount here and I've been overpaying. So, and I wouldn't now just leave my existing factory. I'd go to my factory and be like, hey, by the way, other suppliers have gotten contact with me because if you do good business, like if you're number one seller on Amazon, factories will find you, they'll contact you and they'll write to you. They'll buy your product, they'll make a sample of your product, they'll send it to you and they'll say like, hey, by the way, we can supply this to you at $4.76. So I would say, hey, by the way, just so you know, other factories have been in touch with me and they're offering me, they've made me a sample and they're offering me $9, but I'm currently paying 11 to you. Now, I really love working with you and everything's going smooth. Your communication's been fantastic and I really enjoy building this business with you. But to continue, I need you to be able to match the price. And they will greatly, greatly appreciate that you didn't just leave them and that like you offered them, hey, I'm going to give you the first chance to see if you can do this. And if you can't, then we'll stay friends and... Um, I have to switch because maybe you're not capable of doing these types of prices. So I think those types of exercises to understand. Um, and you know, the other thing is as well, is that let's say you're starting from day one and you're an absolute beginner. And like a lot of people ask me like, you know, how should I source as a beginner? And I, I no longer like to think of it as like beginner, intermediate and advanced sourcing. It's now like we saw with all the challenges that happened in the last couple of years in supply chain, like you either do it right or you don't do it at all. Like if you're paying extra for, your product or you're getting later delivery times or your shipping cost is really high like you're already like out of the game so like how are you supposed to scale that business if you're paying like 25 percent more than what someone else is able to get so you really have to be doing like high level sourcing from day one and you can't really take any shortcuts so it's very very important the stuff that we talked about on this episode up till now that you apply all those principles and don't just think oh yeah i'll fix that as i get bigger it's like you have to start from day one with the right uh, principles in place yeah, and I think the other really interesting thing there is like different factories might be different, pre prepared better for different sorts of scale. And then as you're scaling your product catalog, as you're not only scaling the amount of specific products you're doing runs on, but as you're introducing more SKUs, you're working with different materials, like you have to constantly be reevaluating your supply chain because there's so many opportunities to like save real meaningful money and margin in a business where so much of your costs are being eaten up by shipping costs, by returns, by defective products, by all these different things. So like the very least that you can be doing to remain competitive in a market is by constantly questioning and optimizing your entire sourcing and supply chain. Yeah. And one, one quick, um, sort of strategy I would give like sort of going into 2023 is that to have a focus on sustainability because I was at an outdoor trade show because I, I still love like the camping and outdoor business because that's what I grew up in so I went to Munich in June and like all the biggest outdoor brands like your North Face, Patagonia, Burkhouse, Jack Wilskin, Osprey, all those guys were there and what was wild was to see that every single one of them had a massive focus on sustainability but not just oh hey this product is made from recycled material it's this product was made with 27% recycled material which came from rope which was found from the bottom of the ocean which was then um, shredded down and turned into these like uh, swimming shorts and then it's like oh cool like they're going into that level of detail now and it's like regardless even today like you can ask your factory even if you just do like a normal backpack you can say to your factory hey i know we use this like 600d polyester but do you have any of the 600d polyester which is made from recycled materials and then if like they, they can go to their material factory and ask for recycled materials and the quality of the recycled materials is the exact same as the normal one it just looks a little bit different and let's say for example they say okay but this polyester is 10 percent more expensive than the normal polyester that does not mean that your cost of goods will be 10 percent more expensive it's just the material that's 10 percent more expensive but the cost of goods actually comes from like the labor costs and the labor is the most important cost in the product so if it's 10 percent more expensive for polyester it might just actually only be like four or five percent more expensive on your actual unit cost and now you can say that hey our products are made from sustainable materials or 
uh, even your factory, I would ask your factory, you know, do you use any solar energy or any wind power energy? So you can say our products are made with from factories which use re renewable energy sources. Or when it comes to like delivery of your goods, you can use like eco-friendly couriers which use like electronic vehicles and stuff like that. So there's so many different things you can do. And if you have, if you're fully transparent and you have a communication with your customer in terms of, and even Amazon is rewarding um, brands which are eco-friendly. So you can apply for any level of certification of sustainability from what materials you're using in your products. And then Amazon gives you this badge called Amazon Climate Pledge Friendly. And it's this little green icon that if someone's, if your products are the exact same as the competitor, but you have that green icon, it shows that it came from a sustainable source, that's just automatically putting you ahead. And people can also shop by Amazon Climate Pledge Friendly. So just, this is something to really start to focus on to put you ahead uh, of your competition. If you feel like, I don't know where, I, where else I can innovate, focus on sustainability because I've read a lot of articles about like, you know, two out of three customers are willing to pay more for a product that comes from an eco-friendly, environmental, organic, or sustainable source. Yeah, I love that because it's your job to build the brand and you build the brand with storytelling and it's your job to find out what do your customers care about and what do they value rather than you looking at it from a, you know, a one-sided negotiation of what's the best price I can get. You're missing the entire picture that you're building a brand um, and your customers might value things you might not even be thinking about. I, I read the book from uh, Let My People Go Surfing from the founder of Patagonia and I mean, that's their whole thing, right? It's like the one jacket that you can keep forever. And they even had like babies and, you know, clothes for babies and like um, on their on their marketing campaigns. I mean, their marketing campaigns were crazy and they're still, you know, going at it. Yeah, that's a great story. I love Patagonia. Two questions before we rack, uh, wrap up, Kian. The first is obviously a bunch of the business that you've done has been um, in China, in Asia, um, through all these different factories. As we've seen the political climate evolve in the U.S. and from other markets, like how have you seen that, um, you know, trickle down through through to your business? Is it something that you're thinking, you know, is is just going to pass over? Is it something that you're preparing for, and you guys are building out relationships with other factories? Like, how do you bring that into your you know your calculus yeah for sure great question and, and i know that like you know kind of this whole last couple of years has kind of taught us that we can't just rely on china right so i always say that like you have you should have a china plus one strategy meaning purchase your goods from the place where you can get the best quality and the best price which 90 percent of the time just happens to be china but um it's also very important to have a backup you know can your goods be purchased also from turkey myanmar bangladesh sri lanka usa mexico and then if so, get those samples, get those prices. And it doesn't mean you have to switch immediately, but it means that you should actually start the communication because China production shut down at random times just because of like lockdowns. They had power outage situations. They had like closures of the port. And it's like, if you get told all of a sudden, by the way, you can't get your goods for four months, the last thing you want to do is now start to find a factory in another country. You want to already have those conversations in place. And, you know, a lot of people ask, well, hey, you know, like I do this like uh, backpack how do I know where else to get backpacks from? Like, which country do I go to? And I would say that you have to go to the country which specializes in the main raw material of that product. So for example, India is very strong for wood, cotton, canvas, handcraft, leather. So if you're doing leather bags, well, yeah, like India or Pakistan would be a great source for you. And like a quick hack is that you can go to Alibaba.com and I, I know I said search by manufacturers, but if you search by products rather than by manufacturers and type what your product is and hit search on the left side of the page, it will tell you the number of the countries which have results for that product. So you might see like um, Thailand, Russia, Turkey, Bangladesh, and you're like, oh, cool, click on those countries and then now engage with those companies and start to have those conversations. There's also a great website called importyeti.com which shows you the import records of because any it, your goods go into your container and the container is sealed you get given a bill of lading bill of lading is what tells customs what's in that container and only for the us that bill of lading is public information now import yeti has scraped all of that information so you can now type in a brand and it will bring up their shipping records you can click on their um, on their bill of lading document and you can see who their factory is and that's free it's a great resource so i would now let's say for example we're doing these outdoor camping chairs i would look at all the top brands which are selling in the usa look up those brand names on import yeti look at their shipping documents and see what country they're coming from and what factories are coming from and then communicate directly uh, with them as well so it's very very important to have a strategy for talking to a factory outside of china because while china is still the dominant place to manufacture your goods 
the cost of goods, I think, from China is only going to go up because I've only I've seen the labor costs from when I first went to China in 2010. The labor cost for a normal factory worker was about $150 a month. Now it's over like 1100. So they've had a massive increase in their cost of labor and it's only going up because China have had a massive growth in their middle class. And as you have a growth in your middle class, you start to desire a lot of like Western goods. So now there's like nightclubs and pizza huts and coffee shops and Starbucks and all that sort of stuff. And as those things pop up, well, they need staff to go and work in those places. So someone's like, well, why should I work in a factory when I can work in a Starbucks and work half the hours and play on my phone all day? So now the factories are like, we can't get those younger workers coming to the factory because we're going to work in coffee shops. So now we need to pay those workers more and we need to go more rural, more inland, more into the countryside. So China's got a labor issue and it's only going to get worse. Um, but on the flip side, because I talked to a lot of factories about this to be like, you know, what are you guys doing about it? And they're investing a lot into AI. So they're going to be a lot less labor dependent. The costs will increase in the short term, but in the long term, they should come down. And China are at the forefront of that. So I think we're going to see a short term increase and a long term decrease in uh, in product costs. But anyway, I say all that to say you should have another country lined up just in case there's any challenges with China. Should people be looking a lot in America? Yes, yes, I would say so, especially if, um, you know, if your main market is the US, you know, similar time zone, it reduces your transport costs as well. But there's also a lot of challenges because I've looked into Latin America as well. And the thing that I really like about ordering from Alibaba.com and China and stuff like that is that we have like payment protection, right? You know, we can pay a 30% deposit. We can place our final balance. We've had all that communication in Alibaba. If something goes wrong, we have trade assurance so Alibaba can refund us or, you know, we can hold payment. We can get credit terms and stuff like that. My fear is that like, you know, if you buy from Latin America, you have to have people on the ground because I can't just go online, contact a factory in Latin America, wire $50,000 without having seen them before. I could do that in China. But if I do that in Latin America, I think I've got a lot more risk. So I would need someone on the ground. So I would look for Latin American sourcing agencies and uh, sourcing companies to sort of help you with that. I wouldn't recommend it's something you should do by yourself. Now paying Bitcoin and try and claim it. <laughs> Absolutely. Got it. And the last question I have before we wrap up here, well, this and then one more about um, you and where we can find you. But um, at the level of like, SLAs, how should brands be thinking about that? Are there any like really important things that you see getting missed in SLAs or that they should really be including and, you know, just giving brands, I guess, a bit more leverage? I know we covered some of the topics earlier in the conversation, but are there any like last tips or last hints that you've seen at the level of SLAs to really give brands, um, you know, some insight into that? Uh, by SLA, do you mean like a service level? Or yeah, like just the agreement that they have, the brands will have set up with their, um, you know, their manufacturing partner. So like if in the instance something goes wrong, everyone knows who's accountable. And a lot of times having like the right agreements in place are, are important to brands. For sure. Yeah, it's a great point. And I, I always send the terms and conditions document with uh, every order that I send. And in those terms and conditions, it's basically all the errors or mistakes that have happened in the past. And I sort of uh, list that out. So, for example, it might say that... Um, we agree a shipment date. I'll say like, you know, what, what date will the goods ready be for, for, for shipment? They'll say 1st of November. And in that document, I'll say, um, if a delay of 14 days or more happens on the shipment of our goods, then the supplier is hereby responsible to air freight at their own expense, 30% of the goods. And they see that and they sign that to be like, well, now I'm accountable to ship on time. Whereas before, if we didn't have a contract, we're like, oh, by the way, your goods are late. How long? One month. All right. When are you gonna get them to me as soon as I can? But now they're accountable because they've signed the terms and conditions and those terms and conditions are written in both English and Chinese and you've both stamped it with your company details as well. Now that's not something that you can like legally enforce, but it's something telling your supplier that, hey, uh, I'm serious about this. I've got my own agreements in terms and conditions and stuff like that. And it's telling the supplier like, we. Uh, we better not mess around with this type of customer. Now, there are also like official contracts that you can do in terms of like, you know, protection of your products, NDAs, NNNs and stuff like that. And people always ask me, you know, should I have contracts with my suppliers and stuff like that? I would say, honestly, it's not worth the paper that it's written on because are you really gonna go to China, hire a Chinese lawyer, sue your factory for this little amount, but you're gonna pay a lot more legal costs and now you can no longer work with that factory? I much more like to prioritize the relationship side of things and just to tell my factory, like let's say I'm developing a very innovative product, I'll tell my factory, um, 
because I trust you and because I want to build this business with you in partnership for the long term, I don't need to work with any contracts but with you, but I need to have your words that you're going to keep this information confidential between us. And they're like, yep, I got it. So I've made it very clear to them that I'm trusting them. They're my partner. We're, it's win-win. We're working together. But if I didn't say that, if I just said, hey, sign this contract, it becomes like a very transactional. It's kind of like, hey, um, I trust you enough to manufacture my goods, but I don't trust you enough that you're not going to copy me. So I need you to sign this. And that's not setting your relationship off in, in the right uh, foot. So I would always just say, like, have a terms and conditions so you're both on the same page. And another example I put in that terms and conditions is something like, hey, uh, I will pay for the first pre-shipment inspection. But if the factory fails the inspection, it's a factory's responsibility to rework the goods and pay for the second inspection. So it's like, I'll pay for it. It's fine. But if you mess it up, that's your cost. And like, got it. And again, if that was not written in the terms of conditions and the factory fails the pre-shipment inspection, they're like, when are you going to arrange the next one? It's like, well, I'm not paying for the next one. I paid for the first one. They're like, yeah, but it wasn't written down. So it's very important to have like some sort of terms and conditions written down with your factory. So you're both on the same page of what the standards are for this order and it will minimize a lot of mistakes. This is probably why you would want to stay in platform if you're early rather than going off platform because those sellers care a lot about their reputation within Alibaba, within those platforms. If you go off platform trying to be smarter, you know, and, and it's your like first orders, um, you can't go to those platforms and try to like report their behaviors or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would also just say go off platform once you've built enough trust, because like you, you'll do your payments online via Alibaba, but there's like fees associated with that and the supplier doesn't like it and it's a little bit more expensive for you. But I would start doing bank transfers directly to your supplier. Once you've done a couple of orders, everything's gone smooth. There wasn't any issues. And now it's like, right, we're really we're building this together. Uh, cool. Let's just uh, go off platform now. Sweet. Well, Kian, we just wanted to thank you for, um, you know, coming on the pod and dropping some serious knowledge about sourcing um, as we wrap up here. Uh, as we wrap up here, where can our listeners connect with you? Um, where can they find you? Where can they email you? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on email? What, what's the best place? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, I've got a YouTube channel called Sourcing with Kian, which kind of the stuff that we talked about today, I've got a video on every topic. So if you just want to improve your knowledge on supply chain and stuff like that, definitely check out the Sourcing with Kian YouTube channel. Uh, I've also got a Facebook group of the same name, uh, which if anyone's got any like sourcing supply chain questions, they just pop it in the chat and either myself or someone else will reply. We all help each other out and I just jump in there and do updates. Uh, I'm also on Instagram where I'm Kian underscore JG. Uh, also on LinkedIn, just under Kian Gozari. And uh, my email is just k at sourcingwithkian.com. So if anyone's got any like sourcing supply chain needs, uh, feel free. I do have a sourcing agency and a sourcing platform as well uh, called Titan Sourcing. So just drop me an email, drop me a line. And if you need any help, uh, happy to connect you guys. Sweet. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Super informative. Uh, and we can't wait to see all the, the next exciting pro uh, companies and products that you, you end up sourcing. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolute pleasure. And uh, wishing you guys an amazing day. Thank Take care. you. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.